0: I now want to move to our, uh, our first set of flash talks of the day. These are uh, sh- shorter presentations on a wide variety of topics because there's just not time to have a panel on uh, uh, everything that uh, deserves covering in the broad universe of surveillance issues. Uh, and so to begin, uh, uh, Alan Butler, uh, who is the general counsel of EPIC, is going to look at the question of how often uh, prosecutors use uh, the courts to track people uh, using location surveillance orders? Uh, The answer, somewhat disturbingly being, um, we're just not sure. Um, But Epic and Alan are working to try and dislodge some of that information.
1: Thanks, Julian, and thank you to Cato for hosting me. As Julian mentioned... My organization, EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, uh, has been working on uh, surveillance oversight issues for many years and one thing that uh, I've focused on in my time at EPIC is the issue of location surveillance. Um, To give kind of a brief background on the issue generally, Over many decades, uh, law enforcement has used a variety of uh, methods to track the locations of individuals, and we've seen those methods change over time, but also we've seen, you know, questions arise over the the, the ensuing decades about what legal and technical standards and restrictions uh, are in place and should be in place uh, for that type of investigative activity and surveillance. So, for example, in the 1980s, in a pair of cases, the Supreme Court tackled the question of what the legal standard would be for law enforcement uh, action to track individuals using uh, beepers that were kind of the old-school uh, type of surveillance that you might see in the TV show *Dragnet*, uh, that literally were small radio devices that would be kind of implanted in a physical item that was either you know placed in a car or they knew would be placed in a car, and then have a separate radio device that actually reads the signal and strength and can you know, follow a car um, as it drives from from point to point. So the Supreme Court in those cases decided that there was no expectation of privacy in the transiting of public roads, um, but that actually if a car with a beeper in it pulled into a private residence, uh, law enforcement was not allowed at that point to track where that that beeper went. Um, But the techniques evolved and got more sophisticated over time, Uh, And, in fact, in the 1990s, law enforcement began developing uh, special technologies to track uh, cell phones and other mobile devices and cellular devices. Uh, These were originally developed in the military context and then deployed by law enforcement in the United States. They're commonly referred to as IMSI catchers, sometimes called stingrays. Uh, These devices were being deployed without warrants. They were uh, being deployed really without uh, knowledge of, of most people, certainly not those that were subject to them, but even really of the courts, uh, they were being authorized generally under the, an application for a pen register, which uh, in the 1970s meant an order to, to get logs of the calls to and from a particular phone number, um, but that was being used in the 1990s and, and on to authorize direct tracking of phones using special uh, radio hardware that could identify nearby devices and even uh, measure their distance or their, triangulate their location. But through the 1990s and into the 2000s, law enforcement began using other forms of targeted location surveillance, including uh, physical GPS devices that they may actually attach to vehicles or other items. Um, That was dealt with in the US versus Jones case in the Supreme Court and that was heard in 2011, 2012. There, the Supreme Court ultimately decided that the attachment and use of a GPS device to track the movements of a vehicle was a search under the Fourth Amendment. Um, distinguishing the earlier cases from the 1980s and kind of reinvigorating the law of the Fourth Amendment standards around location surveillance. But throughout the late 90s, 2000s, and certainly into today, the most prevalent form of location surveillance is actually the collection of data from cell phone companies uh, about typically the towers that a phone is connected to. So uh, in a city like Washington, D.C., there is a huge number of cell phone towers that, that is necessary to support all of the devices that we all use every day. And so the density uh, of, of towers is is quite high. And what that means is that knowing a, which tower a particular phone is uh, connected to, is the strongest nearby tower, is a very you know, good piece of information to know where that phone user is located at that time. Um, And so historically what what had developed uh, in the 2000s was a method where law enforcement was getting both historical and real-time cell phone location data using a hybrid of uh, the pen register statute that I mentioned before, which allows ongoing monitoring of of, uh, phone call data, and then also uh, what is referred to as 2703D orders, which are under the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, uh, orders that a- allow the collection of subscriber records from uh, service providers like cell phone companies. The combination of these two authorities the DOJ asserted was enough to give them both historical and real-time uh, location data related to specific cell phone. There was a push by magistrate judges around the country to uh, quest- call into question this uh, assertion by the DOJ, which really couldn't hadn't at that point been scrutinized by any other courts. Magistrates were on the front lines of this because they're the ones getting... The actual applications. And a number of magistrates, including in Texas and in New York, uh, called into question this legal authority. Ultimately, that question was resolved by the Supreme Court in the Carpenter case, which was a criminal case where an individual uh, had been tracked by the collection of his cell phone data. And the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the collection of cell phone location data is a search uh, subject to the warrant requirement, presumptively. So that happened in 2018. Prior to the Carpenter case, And in the lead-up to Carpenter, Epic filed a series of requests with the Department of Justice to try to get a handle on how prevalent this activity actually was, how many of these orders are out there. Um, And so we filed a request seeking disclosure of these 2703D location data warrants um, with the Department of Justice, and we ultimately had to sue because they they hadn't responded. Um, And this gets to the issue of, generally, surveillance oversight, which... We do just fundamentally don't have uh, public, transparent surveillance oversight in the context of location data tracking, or even more broadly in the context of, uh, you know, the, the collection of electronic uh, records, emails, and otherwise. Contrast that with the scheme under the Wiretap Act, which is Title Three, which is the recording and interception of, of communications in real time, uh, where we have a very robust reporting regime. Uh, Congress enacted in the 1960s, it's carried out to this day. Uh, the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts compiles this very comprehensive report and releases it every year. EPIC and, and a number of other groups uh, have historically you know, assessed, reviewed, posted, made available these reports. Um, and it really allows us to scrutinize the use of, of wiretap authority, including figuring out you know, what types of crimes are being investigated using wiretaps, how expensive are the wiretaps, how often do they lead to convictions. Uh, and the like. We just simply don't have that type of data when it comes to location surveillance. Um, Including pen registers, as I mentioned, GPS tracking, cell phone location data, uh, IMSI catchers. We do uh, have actually a lot more information, ironically, about foreign intelligence surveillance because, again, there's statutory authority and requirements there that there be annual and semi-annual reporting on that activity. Um, So what do we do when we don't have these transparency reports? Well, we try, EPIC is trying to find out as much as we can about what's actually happening, so we use the other tools at our disposal, the Freedom of Information Act. Um, just a quick note, you know, mentioned on Carpenter uh, that following the Carpenter decision, the Department of Justice actually does not uh, get that data with uh, Section 2703D order anymore. They actually do have to go and get warrants. But again, we don't know how many location data warrants they're getting. So we have to file the new request after Carpenter that's involved in our case as well. So we have these surveillance applications and orders that are being uh, sought by the pros- federal and state prosecutors and being issued by federal uh, and state courts. Um, so we focus on the federal level and the Department of Justice. Uh, and we know that because they're seeking these applications and ultimately obtaining surveillance orders that they have records of this activity. And so we focused on surveillance orders issued in 2016, 2017, and now with our new requests 2018 and 2019, and we simply asked the uh, Executive Office of the U.S. Attorneys to give us a copy of every order that was issued for location surveillance. Um, we spent more than a year litigating this case, and the answer so far has been we don't know. The Department of Justice says there's no way to search for these things, um, and we, you know, obviously pride beyond the initial answer of we can't search for them because they're not in, you know, the general law enforcement database that we have access to. Well, they have, they've never disputed that they actually have the records. These surveillance orders are obviously uh, used by the prosecutors who are executing their cases, and so we we pride further and said, well, you know, can we focus on? Let's focus on a particular office, uh, maybe the most sophisticated offices in the country, like the U.S. Attorney's Office here in D.C. or in the Southern District of New York. So let's ask them, do they have a method for tracking uh, their surveillance applications or orders? Uh, Both of them came back and basically said, no, we don't track this at all, and also we can't search our electronic files because uh, we have so many files, and if we search them, it will break our computers, and we can't do our work. Um, So we can't search the Department of Justice's files, which is what we're currently challenging, right, the assertion that there's no way to search uh, the electronic records of a the prosecutor's offices, the federal government agencies that are subject to FOIA. Um, But we also went further. and We said, okay, these large, sophisticated offices can't search their electronic files because there are so many. How about the smallest U.S. attorney's office in the continental U.S., which is in the eastern district of Oklahoma? Uh, Also, they simply said, no, we can't search that. Um, And through the litigation, we've learned that that office has a grand sum total of one terabyte of files uh, from its prosecutors, and they can't search it. So we're currently litigating this case, and we're hoping uh, to get an order that will a favorable order that will uh, force them to go through some of these records and identify some of the orders uh, that that they do have. We know that prosecutors in some of these offices have been uh, beginning to integrate these files into their uh, case management and other database systems. And simultaneously, uh, there's been an effort here in D.C. by um, Jason Leopold and the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press to unseal. Uh, old surveillance orders for closed cases, uh, and as a result of that case, which was brought around the same time as ours, um, there's actually now an agreement between the District of Columbia Federal Court and the U.S. Attorney's Office and the DOJ here to issue uh, basically unsealing orders and, and reports twice a year that categorize all of the surveillance applications that are filed. So you can actually find these now on the District of Columbia Federal Court website, under their standing orders, you can see a list. For example, if you look at the the, the report that was filed last April, you can see a list for a six-month period of every uh, surveillance application that was filed in federal court in D.C. Uh, and that includes information about whether it's you know a pen register order, whether it's a, a order for cell phone location data, or whether it's an order for email records or, or the like. Um, so again, we're, we're there's no question that these orders exist, we're just trying to uncover them to add to the fund of public information about uh, surveillance and how prevalent this activity is because we frankly just don't know enough about how often these authorities are used and in the grand bigger conversation about what uh, you know legal restrictions should be in place over these different types of surveillance, I think it's critical uh, to have that type of information. Uh, but I, as I did note earlier, we did learn through the course of our case that the day the Carpenter decision was issued, uh, the Computer Crimes Division of DOJ issued guidance to all federal prosecutors that said you do have to get obtained warrants to get uh, this type of cell phone location data. Um, so that's you can find more information about this on our website at epic.org. There's also a copy of our case complaint out uh, front and some other materials uh, if you want to learn more about us. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Alan. And uh, before we head to lunch, uh, our second flash talk is going to be uh, from uh, Gabriel Rotman of the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, those of us who are old enough to recall uh, may remember that uh, once upon a time it was uh, fairly unusual for a leak of classified information to reporters um, to result in a prosecution of the leaker. It's understood to be sort of a a price of doing business in an open society where a function of the press sometimes required um, that classified information would uh, make its way into the, the newspapers. Um, but over the last decade, we've seen an explosion of the use of the Espionage Act really passed um, to target spies um, used as a way of going after who leaked to press. Uh, uh, the Reporters Committee has, of course, been tracking that. And uh, Gabriel will provide some details of that explosion of prosecutions. Uh,
2: thanks, Julie. Uh, and thanks for having us here uh, to talk about uh, the treatment of journalistic sources uh, as spies uh, under the law. Uh, the, the Reporters Committee is, uh, is not a whistleblower organization. Uh, we're a, a legal services organization. Our attorneys provide pro bono legal services for journalists across the country, uh, primarily in uh, open records cases uh, and court access cases. Um, but we were formed uh, almost 50 years ago uh, in response to an unprecedented wave of subpoenas to journalists uh, seeking to compel them to disclose the identity of anonymous sources. Um, And the reason why that's important to news gathering is pretty obvious. Uh, If you can't uh, confirm, if you can't assure your source of confidentiality, then they won't be your source. The sources dry up and news gathering as a whole is is harmed. Um, And so this particular issue, uh, the use of... Spying laws, specifically the 1917 Espionage Act that was passed shortly after uh, America's entry into World War One, against journalistic sources, um, is is a core uh, component of this uh, this mission to protect news gathering and to protect reporter source confidentiality. Um, I don't have a lot of time, uh, so I'm going to be pretty high level. Um, what I was going to do is. Uh, you know, you can see this is a, a this is one of a few resources that we've put together uh, on our website at uh, rcfp.org um, that you can go to that tracks uh, the proliferation of these cases uh, over time, and specifically over the last the last decade. Um, and there's this. There's also a comprehensive chart. Uh, that we've put together that lists all of the media leak cases, uh, not just under the Espionage Act, but going back to um, the founding of the country, um, cases where there has been a confrontation between the press uh, and uh, and the government over uh, efforts to disclose the identity of, uh, of confidential uh, reporter sources. Um, so I would urge you, please, to to look at that. Um, talking about the Espionage Act, we're, we're talking about something rel- relatively specific. Uh, the, as I say, the Espionage Act was passed in 1917. Uh, there was express debate uh, during the uh, deliber- congressional deliberation before passage of that law over whether uh, it would apply uh, or confer censorial power to President at that point, Woodrow Wilson, uh, to actually block the publication of uh, national defense information. Uh, in newspapers, um, and to potentially punish it after after the fact. Congress uh, expressly rejected those provisions. Um, but the law has uh, evolved over time um, to include provisions that apply to uh, traditional spying, the, the transfer or sale of military defense secrets to hostile foreign powers. Um, but there are also provisions that read in isolation Um, simply apply to either the transfer by a person with authorized access to military defense information or a person with unauthorized access to defense information um, to a person not authorized to receive it. Um, And those provisions, as I say, read in isolation and literally, would apply to the leak of military defense information to um, a reporter. Uh, Historically, prosecutors have forborne from using these laws in that way. Um, Throughout the entirety of the Cold War, uh, there were a smattering of cases. Uh, the, The vast majority of them were unsuccessful. You can see in this chart... Um, starting uh, I- around World War II. There were two cases that were actually expressly contemplated against the press. Uh, one of them, a grand jury, was, uh, was convened in Chicago to potentially prosecute uh, a war correspondent and uh, the Chicago Tribune for publishing a story about the Battle of Midway. Uh, the grand jury in that case refused to indict uh, because ultimately the, the, the Navy uh, would not provide um, codebreakers. To, to testify in front of the grand jury about the potential harm from the disclosures. Uh, the grand jury refused to indict in that case. Um, the second case resulted in much-reduced charges, uh, although a plea agreement for the editor of a left-wing magazine called Amerasia. Yeah. Um, in 1957, there was a case uh, against the first express case under the Espionage Act uh, against a, an army colonel involved in Uh, the Jupiter Missile Program. Um, Again, his case was resolved under uh, much-reduced charges, and he was permitted to continue to serve. Um, And then in 1971, you had the most well-known case, the Pentagon Papers uh, prosecution of Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo. Um, Again, that case resulted in dismissal because of government misconduct, Um, And then finally, in the mid-1980s, there was a case involving a Navy analyst named Samuel Laurie Morrison. Um, That case resulted in a conviction, uh, but after a lobbying campaign, after he'd served uh, his sentence, his conviction was upheld on appeal uh, in the late 1980s, um, after he'd served his sentence, uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan lobbied President Clinton for a pardon, not because of anything meritorious in, in the case, but because of the singularity of his conviction and the fact that leaks happen all the time and prosecutions at that point were exceedingly rare. Um, Then in the early 2000s, you had um, a couple of cases that uh, ostensibly involved uh, leaks. But they, they weren't sort of pure. They weren't exactly like the Morrison case. You had one case involving um, uh, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, uh, two employees there, uh, an alleged conspiracy with a Pentagon analyst uh, to, to disclose information about Iran. Um, there were allegations in that case of disclosures to the press. Uh, that case also uh, resulted in um, much-reduced charges for the uh, the insider, the Pentagon analyst, um, and dismissal for the, the two employees. Um, and then there was the, the Valerie Plame, uh disclosure that resulted in the prosecution of, uh, of Scooter Libby. Um, that case started as a leak case under not the Espionage Act, but a law that I'll, I'll briefly touch on in a second, um, that specifically applies to the disclosure of the identity of undercover intelligence uh, officers. Um, and again, that case resulted in the conviction of Libby uh, under false statements. Um, but it wasn't a pure leak case. Since 2009, uh, starting with a case against an FBI linguist, but really ramping up in uh, in 2010, um, there have been uh, 18 what I'm calling pure source cases in the sense of these cases, now not all of them have, res- have resulted in uh, conviction or ultimate charges under the Espionage Act, but they all are based on the uh, public disclosure of government secrets through the press um, rather than what we would consider traditional spying. Um, and, you know, those 18 cases uh, include the, the names that we've heard today already, including uh, Chelsea Manning, um, Edward Snowden. Uh, they also include, for instance, uh, General David Petraeus, uh, who uh, I- accepted a, a, a plea agreement Um, but also in in a leak case. Um, And uh, and so those cases break down pretty equally between two administrations, which is kind of an important point to make. Um, You know, this is not limited to uh, the Trump administration. Um, The investigations that led to the cases since 2009 started under the Bush administration, Um, but under the Obama administration, you saw nine or 11 of these cases, again, depending on how you count. Um, so again, I would urge you to go to the website, because I won't get into the the, the number crunching. Um, it can be kind of in the weeds. But we're basically talking about 18 pure source cases, and then two other cases uh, that, that look slightly different in that they involve the public disclosure of these secrets, not traditional spying, um, but they're not exactly in the journalistic context. One of those cases I'll talk about in a second. It's the Julian Assange case. Um, so you had 9 or 11 cases under Obama. The Trump administration uh, has continued to bring these cases, as you can see. Um, there's a couple of things to, to note. You know, the Obama administration actually had several direct confrontations between uh, the press and, and the government. Uh, there were a number of subpoenas issued to reporters, uh, not just the James Risen subpoena, which was probably the um, the, the most well known. Uh, there was also an associated Press subpoena that uh, covered uh, more than thirty phone lines uh, used by potentially more than one hundred reporters uh, and then there was also a search warrant that was uh, that was sought and obtained for the Gmail uh, of a national security reporter, um, in another case, the Kim case, um, both of those instances actually resulted in changes to internal uh, guidelines at the DOJ governing when and how prosecutors can um, investigate uh, the press. Uh, so the Obama administration had had that. And then under the Trump administration, um, we, we've seen a number of these cases brought. As I say, at this point, there are 18 or 20 cases, depending on how you count. If there are eleven or nine under Obama, the rest are under uh, under the Trump administration. Um, but there's only one case in the Trump, uh, under the Trump administration where uh, records have been sought directly from a reporter. Um, that's in the James Wolf case, the former security director for the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, and uh, um, so, so that that's the record as as we have it as we have it now. Um, I, as I say, I don't have a lot of time. So let me very quickly uh, touch on uh, the two cases uh, that are worth watching, both of which have been brought under the Trump administration. Uh, The first is uh, the prosecution of Daniel Hale. Uh, He's a former contractor um, in the intelligence community. Uh, and he is being uh, charged under the Espionage Act and actually under a provision of the Espionage Act that specifically applies to uh, signals intelligence. Uh, he's being charged for allegedly leaking information about CIA drone operations. Um, the Hale case is interesting because uh, for the first time uh, in, in a number of years, uh, Hale is seeking to dismiss his indictment expressly on First Amendment grounds. Um, and he's making arguments that haven't been made before. Uh, In the Morrison case, in the mid-1980s, there was only one case, Um, and uh, Mr. Morrison made First Amendment arguments uh, seeking to dismiss uh, the charges against him. Uh, The courts, uh, both the district court and the appellate court in the Fourth Circuit, uh, rejected those arguments, saying that the effect on news gathering from charging journalistic sources um, was effectively hypothetical. Mr. Morrison now is, sorry, Mr. Hale now, is arguing that we have now a record since 2009 of these cases being brought, of these cases being won, that did not exist during the Morrison case. Um, It remains to be seen whether that will be successful, but it is a live argument in a live prosecution in one of these cases. Um, The second case that I will cover, uh, that I should should cover, is the indictment of Julian Assange, uh, the founder of WikiLeaks. this case poses uh, complexities. Uh, Mr. Assange was initially indicted under one count uh, of, effect, of, consp- of a conspiracy to uh, hack into uh, Cippernet, the secret level classified network um, maintained by the Department of Defense. Uh, that charge is complicated because it included uh, it's a conspiracy claim, uh, and the agreement underlying the conspiracy is the solicitation, receipt, and publication of classified information. Uh, but it requires the that the government uh, allege and prove an overt act in service of that conspiracy, and that was to crack a password. So it was a uh, uh, it was a chink in the door uh, in that case. However that one charge was then supplemented in an additional indictment last May uh, with 17 charges under the Espionage Act. Um, Those 17 charges are not based on the password cracking allegation. Uh, And further, three of the charges, and this is really what's, what's relevant in the Assange case, three of the charges are based on what I've called a pure publication theory. And it's a little legal, but what I mean is the government needs to show a guilty act, something that you do that triggers... Uh, liability under the Espionage Act. That single act in three of the charges in the Assange case is simply the posting of classified information online. Um, It's the first time that the federal government has successfully obtained an indictment under a pure publication theory. Um, And the government has tried to distinguish it by arguing that the Assange case is different because uh, WikiLeaks, when they published the Chelsea Manning material, failed to redact the names of assets and informants, U.S. assets and informants. That's true. The Reporters Committee has said it's an ethical and practical distinction between uh, WikiLeaks and Assange and the other news organizations that reported on the same material. Um, It's not a legal distinction. uh, And there's nothing in the way that the government has pled these charges that would preclude bringing Charges under a similar theory uh, against a news news gathering organization for publishing classified information. Any of that, so I have 13 minutes left. uh, 13 minutes, I wish. Uh, I have 10 seconds left. So l- let, me just, uh, let me just conclude by uh, pointing, a- you again, to our website, uh, rcfp.org. Um, we have a number of resources, both uh, deep dives analyzing the Assange case, both the initial indictment and the superseding indictment. Um, we have the, uh, a chart, which is, you know, at this point, 150 pages long. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of cases from the 19th century um, involving Congress, of all things. Uh, and uh, you can find that uh, on our website as well. Uh, And then the project that I run, the Reporters Committee puts out a weekly newsletter that follows these cases in um, probably excruciating detail. So I would urge you to subscribe for that as well. Thanks very much.